0: about co-housing with Lynn Morstead and Kelly Soika. co Houston is a multi-generational, community-minded group of people who share the values of connection and sustainability. We're developing the first co-housing project in Texas, and we're really glad you found us today. Hey, Lynn.
1: Hi there, Kelly. How are you today?
0: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm very good. I'm very. I'm good.
0: great because we have a guest here from uh, near to my old stomping grounds in Colorado, but we also have a, a minor celebrity in the co-housing world because she has a very important job with uh, our kind of organizing uh, organization. Is that what mm-hmm. we would call it, Lynn?
1: I, I actually, me, I call it like a national network of co-housing uh, communities and resources. So that's that's my personal
0: okay. name Okay, I for like them. that too. Anyway, hi, Trish. We're so hi, glad you're
1: here. Trish, do you, you want to defend yourself and tell us what you
2: really do? Yeah, I, I like the it hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> I liked what you two came up with together. I think that that accurately sums up the co-housing association. And I'm really happy to be here.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you. Well, I so enjoyed um, your leadership at the Madison National Conference last year. Um, Very impressive. And so Kelly and I were talking about who we could interview. So we thought, let's talk to Trish. She is at the hub of everything going on in the United States, certainly in co-housing world. So we wanted to ask you a few questions I know our listeners will be interested in. So we'll just go ahead and get get going on this, um, if that works for you, Trish. Sounds great. I'm in. Yeah. So one of the things that we've been wondering about is given your role kind of at the center of this activity is what do you see in people who are dreaming about co-housing and finding their way into a community? What what's been going on in the last couple of years in the co-housing world?
2: Sure. Um, So uh, we have certainly seen. An increase in interest in co housing, specifically, and you know, communal living, collective housing, all of that interest, of course, has been growing since co housing was brought to the US um, a few decades ago. Uh, But then, specifically, since the COVID 19 pandemic, we've seen an increase, and we know this from um, you know, Google Analytics and website Mm -hmm. visits. We can tell people are searching co housing, they're wanting to get to know co housing. It's just sort of bubbling up in this public conversation I'm sure many of your listeners have seen it in articles and heard podcasts it's just kind of having a moment um so people are are really interested um and and are are looking to to learn more about it excellent
0: so is that being met by the co-housing industry do you feel that the two two sides are there the demand is out there but There just are not, it doesn't seem to me like there are as many co-housing communities as there are co-housing dreamers.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would say yes and no. So um, the number of communities is certainly growing. So we're getting close to 200 existing communities in the U.S. today. And then there's about 150 that are in some stage of formation, which that could be anything from a couple of people with a dream and hosting potlucks to actually being under construction. So it's a wide um, spectrum. So, so the communities are growing, but it's, it's unfortunate that it has not been matched by um, an increase in uh, accessibility in the housing market. So while Mm. there are more dreamers, Interest rates are high. um, Land and buildings are really hard to come by. Developers who are interested um, in this sort of work are hard to come by, very hard to come by. Mm. So um, I think that you're right, Kelly, there is a gap between all of the people who are interested and um, the actual number of communities that could get off the ground if all those dreamers could find what they need.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. Are you starting to see some diversity, though, in what co-housing you know, looks like, because there's kind of the traditional co-housing model with a common house and a group of, you know, unrelated people who are coming mm-hmm. together and using consensus. So, but are you seeing some diversity in that, that, you know, people are finding other ways to achieve that without maybe going through that same building phase or?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do think so. I think that um, co-housing is a... um well-known-ish enough word that I think that's where a lot of people start when they discover that they want to live differently, that they don't want to live, um, you know, an isolated life in a large house with a large yard. Um, So I think they find their way to co-housing, but they may not end up in co-housing. They might end up in a situation where they um, co-buy with another family, you know, they together buy a house that, that they exist in together or, um, they might be in a situation where they gather all of their neighbors and tear down the fences and start doing common meals. And I see that as a positive impact of Mm co-housing, you know, if you think about it as a funnel, there's all these interested people who want to move into co-housing. Some of them will, and that's fantastic. And some of them will sort of take the ethos or the sauce of co-housing and like apply it on another housing model. So, um, I'm inspired by that change. Um, while, you know, because I think it's easy to get discouraged that um, it's hard to find your way into co-housing community. Um, But if we can see us influencing all of housing, then I think that that's a success. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm
1: kind of curious. We didn't talk about that earlier, but I'm curious in this kind of following that thread a little bit further that It seems like there's a lot of dreamers who are kind of these, you know, late night, Saturday night, sitting around a campfire, several beers, old friends saying, hey, you know, we need to do this. And then everybody sobers up. And the next day they're like, oh, never mind about that, you know, and um, because they, they really realize that they would have to make some changes. So there's this, you know, this aspirational life or self of ourselves that we just feel like, okay, that's all well and good, but I don't know if I could ever get there. Yeah. So do you see a lot of that in the work that you do that people like kind of want to
2: talk big, but they can't really get to action and. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think that co-housing strikes a chord that mm-hmm all if not, you know, most if not all of us have, which is this desire to live in deep connection with one another, um, more in harmony with the planet and uh, more in support of one another. I think a lot of us have that need. And yet the mainstream is really strong. And so I always picture it like walking upstream, right? Like the narrative that no, you should want a big house and to live by yourself oh, and you don't want to live with other people. You might, you don't know who they are you might have conflict with them. Like all of that messaging is so strong and it's coming in with us so hard that I think sometimes we do around a campfire tap into that dreaming side. And we think, you know, we have the experience of sharing it and hearing others want the same thing. And we think, okay, I'm not crazy. This is a good idea. And then we wake up the next morning and (laughs) that like doubt and fear comes in because that's how our culture is set up. You know, that's what we've been hearing our whole lives is that um, privacy and space and more and more, more is what we should. Yeah, start.
1: well, you know, Katie McCammon always says that your biggest competition, your biggest competitor to your co housing initiative, is the current house that everybody's living in, which is exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah. So um, we wanted to just tap into this idea. If you were interviewed, as we were recently, by somebody who yeah. wanted, to, you know, listen to all of our great stuff about why we are involved in co housing, why we think it's so great, and then they kept coming back to this question, well, why wouldn't you want to do this? They really wanted Mm -hmm. to hear like, what is the downside of this? Mm -hmm. And we really struggled to answer that. How, how would you answer that?
2: Yeah. It's so funny because I think we all hold these stories of people who join communities who didn't think they wanted it or a, um, like a couple where one partner is all in and the other partner thinks that is not for me, but mm-hmm. so often they end up loving it. So it's hard to parse this out. Like who would benefit from community versus who would, it just wouldn't be a fit. And it's true. Co-housing is not for everyone. Um, I think one thing that comes up for me is just the labor involved. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm you know, if you live in community, there is an expectation that you give a portion of your time and your energy towards the collective towards, you know, and you get to choose how you do that based on your skills and passions. Um, And I do believe that you get what you put in, but there are some people who wouldn't, who just don't have the space in their lives um, to give uh, their time and energy to something in addition to family or caretaking or job or that sort of thing.
0: Mm, I like that. Cause I agree that it's funny though, cause uh, to me, the more time you put into community is actually the more time it frees up for you yeah. in very like tangible terms. When I had like young children, like I did not have to make dinner two nights a week. And yet yeah. I had to, you know, go to a meeting, you know, to make the community work in a different way. But It wasn't, um, I didn't feel like the net net was to give up time. See, here I am again, though. Like, no, no, it's, that's not, (laughs) I don't know. I really struggle with this question personally. It's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It's a really hard one. I agree with you. I think that um, you know when you put in the time to build these relationships, you can more easily call upon them when you need support. Um, so I agree. And as a as a mom um, who raised a family in co housing, it's uh, I certainly felt the a net gain on my time. Um, but I could see how that could be a struggle for some.
1: Well, both of you are talking about you know being parents in co-housing and raising young children what I think a lot of people would be really fascinated to hear is both of you guys have this similar story you didn't even know it you collided today in this conversation and you're saying the same things about how it allowed you as a as a mother with young children to really fulfill some of your aspirations maybe both Kelly and you Trish could say something about that I think it's fascinating
0: yeah go for it Kelly I'd love to hear your story. Well, I think, you know, when you first said like to be seen in a different way is, uh, I think if you're a mom with, I had three young kids and everybody I knew, you know, met when I moved was a parent of similar age young children. And, you know, it was like, that is a very, very strong, big identity that you carry with you wherever you go and that people see you there in that way first, mostly, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in all of my kind of social interactions outside of causing. But in co-housing, I was not, I mean, I was, I had that part of my role, but I was also at dinner with people without my children there. And I also was, you know, doing meaningful work in the community without any of my, the rest of my family members there. So it really allowed me to just kind of stay me, um, across a, a bigger social network than I otherwise would have been able to do with three children in tow. Yeah. Okay, sorry, Trish.
2: That totally resonates, Kelly. I, um, I feel like the narrative around new parenthood, specifically with the teeny tinies, um, is just, you're drowning. You cannot keep your head above water. Um, even if you're not working, but then if you're working and parenting, then, um, it's just so overwhelming. And I just felt like co-housing, you know, created this, um, sort of, uh, like net underneath me that kept me from going that far underwater. So Mm -hmm. when I look back on the first years of being a mom, I think about some, um, you know, professional and personal goals that I pursued that I never would have been able to um, if I didn't live in community, it just wouldn't be possible because I didn't have that support keeping me from, from going Mm -hmm. underwater, you know?
1: Yes. I love that. And as a working mom, who didn't have any of that experience, um, I just bought my way out of a lot of it. So, and I think that's one of the themes that I've noticed sort of creeping into the narrative just overall in dealing with the world as it's changing now, is that there's really becoming these two layers of those who can buy their way out of the trouble that's that's arising in our world and those who can't, mm-hmm. and and even those who can end up being lonelier because of it. And I think co-housing provides a way for everybody to come together in a much more optimal way.
2: Totally.
0: Mm. I also was really uh, when you were saying that you know people had to uh, when they come into co-housing they have to um, they have to change you know against this kind of dominant narrative in the of bigger bigger more more. And it was reminding me of something that Laird Schaub, who is, uh, he does a lot of work around facilitation and, you know, other work. He he said like, you know, the thing about facilitation or the thing about consensus is that people come in and they think like, oh, I have this nice house and great life and co-housing. And I didn't really sign up though for, you know, being a better listener or being whatever, you know, I do, I wasn't really ready for like this personal growth part, you know, maybe, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but So I was thinking about that, too, of that you kind of need to be uh, one of the changes that needs to happen is you maybe need to have a little bit more openness um, that will allow you to live more uh, collectively Mm-hmm. And that then you reap all of those benefits too. And so maybe that's one of the benefits too about coming in with young children is you are quite open and quite <laughs> you have quite you're quite, you know, your your needs are on display <laughs> in the community. Totally. Rather mm-hmm. than maybe at different ages it's different um because you have lived a more kind of buttoned up life or you mm-hmm. you know you're only kind of responsible mm-hmm. for yourself and your well, you health.
1: know, I'm I just wonder, Kelly whether what you're identifying is the vulnerability that we all experience when we go through major life. Life transitions. So mm-hmm. when you first become a parent, then you first become an empty nester. You first become a retired person. Those are the times in our life when we really, if you're going to go through some sort of a turmoil that kind of brings you to your knees and
2: mm-hmm. where you
1: really are kind of like, okay, I might feel like I'm buttoned up and able to cope, but I can't right now. And then you you reach out, and the community is what helps you. Then, you know, lift you up.
0: So then I'm thinking, if we are talking about like these are life changes and times in in personal lives, which make people open to living more collectively or living in co-housing, um, Are does this tie into kind of the broader societal trends that we're seeing? And maybe that's kind of bringing everyone to their collective knees a little bit. I don't know. What are you seeing, Trish, out in the big world? What are the metaphors that are bringing people to co-housing?
2: Yeah, well, I think many of us had the experience of um, a feeling really isolated during COVID. Um, You know, we were not allowed to connect with other people. And so we felt that in a real way. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe we were lonely prior to that, but it became very salient during that time. And then simultaneously, you saw these pockets all over the country of hyper-local community efforts, like, uh, you know, people were putting sharing tables out on their front lawn with, you know, extra toilet paper or flour or whatever, you know, the mm-hmm. thing was. And there was this mutual aid and collective care happening. And then also really the only people that we could have <clears throat> face-to-face contact were our neighbors, you know, waving across the street mm-hmm. or across the fence. And so I think that that's sort of, helped dissolve this narrative that, um, we have developed in this country, which is, uh, strangers are scary. And, um, <clears throat> I don't see a benefit in getting to know the people around me. Privacy is most important. Um, and so I think that that was, uh, part of it. Um, just pause. Is that okay with the audio? Something came through on my phone. I'm sorry. You're good. You're okay. good. <laughs> um, So that's one of them. You know, we also see our climate is changing all around us. And so I think that people are starting to engage in resiliency planning. They're starting to think about how do I make sure that I have what I need to survive? You know, there are fires and hurricanes and the planet is changing. And so um, I think that there's a real people are taking a real look at at what they need in their life. And I think that many of them are seeing we need each other. Mm. Uh, to build resilient communities, um, to care for one another, and just to continue to have a feeling of meaning and belonging. Right. Um, and then of course you know i soapbox about this all the time but um i just see technology exacerbating the social isolation that we're already seeing you know um over half of people in the us report experiencing pervasive loneliness and these numbers just go up and up year after year we're in a crisis of loneliness and it's no secret why you know we spend so much of our time um in simulated social connection on phones and social media and uh it's just taking us away from what actually feels good and nourishing which is experiencing human connection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes i love that phrase simulated uh,
1: social connection because yeah. i that really is so true <clears throat> hundreds of likes do not mean a friend you have yeah <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah exactly <laughs>
0: Looking back on my, uh, experience in co-housing in the, um, over, over a surprising, uh, presidential election outcome, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I also feel like, um, like we could say something about a kind of just public discourse, like mm. a need and a, a hunger for public discourse. Cause you don't agree with everybody in your co-housing community, at all, you know, and and there's a real hunger, I think, for people to be able to have a conversation and continue a relationship, as opposed to only hearing from people who think exactly like you, or mm-hmm. they don't think like you, and therefore, that's it, it's gone. Um, I think people intellectually like hunger for that they need to have some sort of outlet where they can probe ideas with other people and I, I really feel like co housing offers that to, to people also, because you have to make
2: decisions together, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think that collectively we're our tolerance for even to say conflict, just like dialogue across difference is, Mm -hmm. um, diminishing and yet in co-housing communities, People are, you know, they have processes for conflict. They Mm. have supports built in to say, yeah, you're human beings. You're going to disagree about things. There will be conflict. So how do we build a structure to address that instead of avoiding it at all costs or running away as soon as it emerges? um, Mm. They're just building systems to support that. I mean, I remember one of my first meetings with, um, Aria, which is the causing community that I was a um, founding member of. And I went to it. And and honestly, my reaction was, oof, this is direct. Like people are communicating very directly. Um, and so it felt unusual to me. It wasn't what I was used mm. to. I was used to like lots of going around yeah. the end yeah. of what you're saying. And, um, so it was sort of an unusual feeling at first, but then I left feeling like, yes, this is direct. People are communicating their needs mm. and they're not, um, taking things personally. They're just, they're, they're communicating about what needs to happen in order to live together. So,
1: uh-huh. and you yeah. know,
2: where you stand.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think you kind of know where you start because mm-hmm you start by all wanting this same way of different living. So at least you have that. Whereas in a lot of conversations, I have no idea where people are coming from outside of my co-housing group. So I don't know, you know, I, I don't, we always try to assume, you know, the best possible intent, but I don't know that per se with, with a lot mm-hmm. of people that I, I come across. So.
0: And we're going to have to like radically change our marketing plan, though, so that it reflects co housing. Come learn how to deal with conflict.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah.
0: Haven't had a good argument lately. Would yeah, like, like to do so
1: in a safe environment. I we know. have regular meetings. We for you practice have this to practice this skill.
2: Yeah.
0: You. yeah. Well, Lynn's uh, tagline is disaster free neighborliness yes. because that's my tagline. That yeah. <laughs> so now I'm going to be, I'm going to do a disaster free conflict. So, like, there you go. Uh, yeah but it's doesn't turn out to be a disaster.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Keep your friends and have conflict. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Trish, this has been a lovely conversation. We really appreciate you coming um, along and experimenting with us in our little podcast. Um, Was there anything else you thought you might say today that we haven't asked the question to reveal the answer for yet?
2: Hmm. I think um, this conversation sparked so much for me just about how we create the world that we want to live in and how in so many ways co-housing models that, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. sustainability or democracy or disaster-free conflict, what we're doing is we're modeling that in these small spaces. And then we hope that it is replicated at scale, right, and creates a, a more um connected future for all of us. Um, and so I think that the one piece of that uh that um is actually the theme of our national conference, um, which will be next summer, is it's rooted in belonging. And that word belonging comes up for me a lot. I just think when you think about creating the world you want to live in, or when you think about being the like best version of yourself or your aspirational self, it really for me, it comes back to belonging time and time again. I think that when people feel a deep sense of belonging and connection with others, when they feel seen for who they are and valued for their contribution to a group, they are more likely to feel empowered to be those selves or to create the change that they want to see. So I think that that um, all of these things are wonderful about co and belonging is the real magic, in my opinion. Wonderful. Thank you. What a great way to end our podcast.
1: Thank you once again. Thank you, both. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks for stopping by today. We're so glad you clicked on our episode. For more information about our project, CoHousing Houston, go to www.cohousinghouston.com and subscribe to our newsletter. For general information about co-housing, we like cohousing.org. We're active on social media, so check out what's happening on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under co-housing Houston.